The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. This is episode 119 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the aisle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle, where my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren LaGiudice. Some wonderful news. Reconcile the Isle is now part of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. You can find us at radiomisfits.com. Now, listen, you'll still be able to find links to all the outlets on my website, laurenlogie.com slash podcast. And we're also going to have a page on Radio Misfits Network. We're psyched to be a part of them. And special thanks to Edward Silas for making it happen. Today, we're going to speak with special guest Danigal Young. But first, let's go to our Stupid, Stupid People, People segment. segment. For those who are new here, it's the part of the podcast where we salute stupidity. Because what unites us across all boundaries, what unites the world, is that we hate stupid people. In this segment, my dad rants about the stupidest person he's seen that week, and then we rate their stupidity and assholeness in rectums. So here's our segment, Stupid People, with my dad, Charles LaGiudice Jr. Okay, Dad, who is the stupid person of the week? Well, it's not just a stupid person. It's a stupid concept or idea. Every time, or almost every single time now, I go to the doctor, and like if it's a specialist, so you go once a year, they give you the clipboard like you're a new patient, and you got to fill out all your information all the time. I mean, you could be going to the same doctor now for 20 years. Oh, but you got all my information. Nothing's changed. Oh, this is the law. Well, this is fucking stupid. Here, take my fucking information, photostat it front and back, white out the fucking date and my name, and I'll sign in and put a new date. Now I got to go fucking, uh, what am I, Thomas Jefferson with my handwriting? I got to fucking go on a clipboard. I got to fucking start writing shit. Any surgeries I had and the years, who the fuck remembers? I got to go look up fucking medical terms, how to fucking spell them. Meanwhile, I, they could have did a fucking heart and lung transplant in the time it takes to me to fill out this fucking form. I got to carry a list of all the fucking medicines I'm on. I need to be on fucking 20 milligrams of Xanax because I want to fucking kill all these jerk offs. All right? It's just fucking ridiculous. And you know what? I go to my regular doctor. I've been going to her for over 20 years. I go every four months. I never have to fill out nothing. Come in. Hi, Mr. Lojudis. You know, all they ask is any insurance change. That's it. No other question. No nothing. You know, pay the copay. They make a copy of your new card, which you get every year. I said, the numbers haven't changed, but here's the new card. And that's it. I mean, these fucking doctors are ridiculous. And it's just like the rest of the world. The people who work for them, are 
lazy bastards that don't want to do nothing. And that's, the, I'm sorry, but that's what one of the big problems in the world is everybody's looking for a fucking handout. Nobody wants to do their job. You know, Mr. Low Judas, has anything changed? No. Okay, here, here's your papers. I'll photostat them right now. I'm writing out your name and the date. Just resign it and we'll put it back in your folder. That's all. I think that's legal enough. I remember... Uh, reading the story where two businessmen, they didn't have a paper, so they wrote, I think, a, a, a contract on somebody's panties, and they signed it, and it was actually a, a deemed a legal vessel, okay? So, mm -hmm. but the doctors, you know, this is the whole thing about the doctors. You know, they, they're like so important. How many times do you, you read a story about like uh, a guy like Mussolini or, some, or Hitler, they wanted to be... They were thinking about going to the seminary to be a priest, and then they wind up killing fucking 80 million people. You know what I'm trying to say? So it's the same thing. Oh, you know, my son's a doctor. My son's a lawyer. Uh, translation, my son's a douchebag and my son's a scumbag. These are just regular people. They went to a little more school, which they have to. But you know what? Not all of them are bad, except for lawyers, 99.9%. <laughs> But most doctors you go, I speak to people all the time, while they're talk, you talk to the doctor, they're just, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're not even paying attention. They probably got an iPhone somewhere, a secret thing, and then they're listening to music or something while you're talking about like how you're bleeding inside, you're shitting blood or something, they don't <laughs> care. How many doctors have been gone to prison and uh, what do you call for Medicare fraud and, and everything else? There's a, some doctor in Cleveland, he never saw one patient and he wrote 30,000 prescriptions for opioids. Nice guy. Yeah, his mother's running along the beach in Miami. Help, <laughs> my son, the doctor is drowning, you know? So people are what they are. You can't tell the book by the cover and you can't tell somebody's personality or anything by their title, okay? How many rectums do we give the paperwork at the doctor's office? Well, this is all the insurance companies, right? Yeah, so Basically. Yeah. So we, we're going to give them five, and then we're going to give the doctors for telling them to stick the papers up their ass four. You know okay. what I mean? That's so, all. And then the snooty people who work for the doctors, we're going to give them a three. Okay. Okay. Wow, people are so stupid. Let's get to the interview with special guest Danigel Young. Danigel G. Young is a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. She's also an associate professor of communication at the University of Delaware, where she studies the content, audience, and efforts of political humor. She has authored over 40 academic articles and book chapters exploring themes related to political entertainment media psychology, public opinion, and misinformation. Her latest book, Irony and Outrage, examines satire and outrage as the logical extensions of the respective psychological profiles of liberals and conservatives. Young is a research fellow with the University of Delaware's Center for Political Communication and was awarded the University of Delaware's Excellence in Teaching Award in 2014. She is a distinguished fellow of the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center and an affiliated researcher with the University of Arizona's National Institute for Civil Discourse. Young is also a co-editor of the 2019 NICD volume, A Crisis of Civility, Political Discourse, and Its Discontents. If you're wondering why liberals make jokes and conservatives often just rant, you'll want to hear this episode. 
Remember, you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcasts to get reminders when we publish this every other week. My co-host Melania Trump was getting her face stretched, so she sent us this message. Hi, friends. Melania here. Hope you're having a nice summers. I'm here in the White House doing nothing. Oh, my favorite activity. I'm wondering, have you registered to vote? Because I don't care if you like Biden or not. You better get me out of this White House of garbage. This place is a dump. They have the same vacuum since Hoover. And I'm so afraid Donald is the third president to be impeached. But he'll become the second to get stuck in the bathtub. Oh, and, you know, Donald says they have not replaced the cigars in the Oval Office since, since, yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt used them as a dildo. So more updates from me, Melania, you can find at themelaniashow.com. All right. So let's get to the interview with Danigal Young. Thank you, Danigal, for being on Reconcile the Isle. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Okay. So I have read your book in full um, with lots of notes, and I just so many questions. I'm really excited. We're going to today talk about the differences between the way different people process information and create comedy and or media, we should say. So because first, what I found really, really interesting was that it wasn't always that people totally distrusted the news. Yeah. And so can you tell us when, sure. when like, well, that fairy tale time, that like seems like idyllic time, where people didn't distrust the news. Yeah. Yeah. What's weird is, so we've been on a sort of steady march since um, post-World War II in terms of declining trust in news, declining trust in institutions, and all kinds of things that are probably democratically bad. So because a lot of our data just go back to the 1950s, we tend to be like, oh, we're, we're just on this constant march towards garbage. But really, um, in, there's a, a political scientist, Jonathan Ladd, who points out that post-World War II was an aberration in terms of high trust. So there was very little political polarization in the United States after World War II. There was tons of trust in the news. Remember, during World War II, we were the good guys, so that mm-hmm. always works well. There was a lot of trust in government and institutions. So everything at that moment, if you compare everything to that moment, we looked terrible. It is fair to say that at the turn of the century, around from 1890s to like 1910, 1920, newspapers at that time were largely partisan. So you did, at that time, you also had low trust, depending upon what outlet you're talking about, obviously. But what's interesting now is that because, once again, we have partisan news outlets, you have a bit of a debacle in terms of public's trust in uh, the institution of media as a whole, just because there are so many different outlets. That's part of it. Another part of it is, remember that the 1960s and 70s were a real moment for challenging authorities, challenging um, the sort of elite narratives between Vietnam and Watergate. You have sort of this crisis of authority and institutions. That was huge. And that continued into the 1980s when, because of the deregulation of media, and changes in the ownership structure of media, you have this huge change in terms of the mandate of news. Instead of news being something that was largely protected in terms of how many ratings points is it supposed to get? Is news supposed to get a profit? All of a sudden, news became this wonderful place for profit. And in fact, we can look at the profit margins of local television news as really what started it, because it was clear that like, wow, local news is cheap to produce. 
makes a ton of money, is very highly watched, and you can make a ton of advertising dollars doing local news, which is what I like to affectionately refer to as rape, fire, murder television. And because that was such a cash cow, it was clear that, wow, there's an opportunity to make a lot of money here. And with the deregulation of media and the consolidation of ownership and squeezing news outlets for every drip of profit you could get out of them, news largely sort of adapted to this sensationalist product that also has had huge effects in terms of public trust. So all of these things come together. That and, and you have to put political polarization in the heart of this as well, because as the public becomes more and more separated in terms of political ideology, and as Republicans increasingly hate Democrats and vice versa, it's very hard to give people information that is objective and neutral and have them see it as objective and neutral. In general now, there is this phenomenon called the hostile media effect, where you give people objective, neutral information, and they say, that is biased against my side. And that happens increasingly as polarization increases, and all of that ends up reducing trust in news as well. And when did regulation start? Like, so we know that they, what they did in the other end, like when did they yeah. start on the, the front end? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know what? I think the conceptualization of news and journalism, there's this term yellow journalism, right? That we equate with sensationalist journalism and sensationalist reporting. And that came about for a reason. I mean, there were these huge newspaper wars between Hearst and Pulitzer and their newspapers were exaggerating all kinds of atrocities and kind of trying to get the United States to go to war and get involved in the Spanish-American War. And after that happened, the American Society of Newspaper Editors said, this is not good and we need to be, we need to have norms of professionalism and we need to be credible. So in some ways, I feel like the institution itself, starting in the 1920s, was very mindful of the professional norms that need to govern its practice. So it's almost like it didn't necessarily need huge amounts of regulation. That being said, it was in, I'm just spacing now about the year, but with the birth of broadcast television, broadcast radio and broadcast television, you did have the birth of the Federal Communications Commission with the idea that there needed to be some regulatory body that would be in charge of making sure that the airwaves and the content that was transmitted across the airwaves was good for society and good for democratic health. And that was mid-century, and that was the role of the FCC. And that stayed through for a long time until, you know, Ronald Reagan deregulated all kinds of stuff, all kinds of different industries because free market, right? And one of them was the, the media industry. And that continued, that deregulation continued even under Clinton. Because then what would happen is like, you don't only own, you used to have a limit to the amount of you can own. And now you yes. can own however many you want, yeah. right? Yes. So there are very few, if any, limits on ownership of media. It's yeah. really, really wild. And that is how we have these giant behemoths. There used to be about I believe the number was back in the early 80s, there were like 50 to 60 companies that owned about 95% of our media products. And now that number is five, right? Because you have the uh, Viacom, CBS thing. Now you have uh, Disney, 
ABC, yeah. A, right, Disney that owns ABC, you have Comcast, which is ginormous, and owns NBC. So these giant organizations are businesses. They are media businesses, but their main goal is not just uh, creating professional journalism, right? They have, they have shareholders. They have what is called their fiduciary responsibility to those people who own stock in those companies. And so those companies are, their whole reason for being is really to generate profit, which is often at odds with the kinds of information that could be good for democratic health. Mm, that's really interesting. And then, then that's how plays like the Sinclair Media Group, if it, I think it's Media Group, Sinclair is the name. Yeah. And they own, they basically have a stranglehold on a lot of local news and which often is the same. They have a, They are sending the same messages to each local news station. And yeah, the, what's yeah. interesting about Sinclair is that it's really it is very very smart because they are taking advantage of the fact that there are not these limits on ownership, mm-hmm. and they have a an ideological skew which is conservative. Mm-hmm. They're also taking advantage of the fact that it is customary now because of this consolidation that individual media markets will not produce independent content. Instead, you capitalize on economies of scale and you say, well, why would we make seven different news reports when if we owned all these channels in all these cities, we would just create one story and it can just broadcast on all of these networks. Mm -hmm. And that is, talk about an efficient way to get an ideological, like, like lens out there. It's like, we just made this one biased story and now it's airing in all these places. The other, what's really interesting is, is, and really heartbreaking actually, is in the local news media market. I'm, I'm sure that you've heard or read about the dissemination of local newspapers. And we used to blame newspaper chains, right? These, you know, Gannett or McClatchy, these, these newspaper chains that would come in and gobble up newspapers and shrink staff. And again, share content across their gazillion newspapers. You wouldn't really have local news from the town. It would kind of be nationalized news because you could share resources Mm -hmm. across a lot of papers. Now it's even worse because you have companies that are not in the business of news at all. Like Gatehouse Media, there's these giant venture capital firms that come in and they gobble up newspapers and they see that it only has an investment opportunity and they sort of disseminate the organizations from the inside. They try to get as much profit as they can, which usually means cutting staff, collapsing resources, or just, you know, shutting down the newspapers altogether. So there's a a wonderful project out of the University of North Carolina called like the News Desert Project, where they've been tracking this over time and tracking this phenomenon that is, it's not newspaper chains. It's these investment firms that come in and gobble things up. And it's funny because when you think about some of the large scale issues that are happening in media, they're not just independent media. The same thing is actually happening in the retail sector as well, where you may have heard that J. Crew filed for bankruptcy and J.C. Penney is having trouble because of the coronavirus, right? But also because the same thing has been going on in terms of investment firms coming in and hollowing out you know, the companies in terms of the amount of resources that go in and kind of leaving them for dead. And it definitely raises some questions about the limits of capitalism. Absolutely. It's interesting. I remember my friend was working for the Village Voice and someone came in from the people that own them, bought them and said, can you cover more sports? 
Yeah. It's the village voice. We cover weird stuff. That's what we do. That's what we do. Yeah. yeah. We don't, we're not the sports people. Yeah. yeah. So th- there are, back in the late nineties, there were um, some journalism scholars who were writing about this phenomenon in newsrooms where these consultants would come in called news doctors, news doctors, <laughs> who actually were not interested in the health of the news at all. They were interested in the health of the profit margin being created by news. Mm. And so generally they would come in and say stuff like that. You know what people want? They want consumer news and beauty tips and <laughs> work. Yeah. Yeah. Lord. And then like, okay, so this is the stage that, that would set now in terms mm. of how we start to get media that's so, so different from each other in terms of who's consuming what. And now I guess before we go into it, just because people, you know, know different things and I'm not sure if everyone's very clear on what's the difference between political humor and satire Mm -hmm. and irony. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, By the way, like even I'm not totally clear on those things and I've been studying for 20 years. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I think of political humor as the big giant umbrella under which a whole bunch of things fall. So anything that is even tangentially related to something political that is funny or intended to be funny is political humor. But not everything that's political humor is satire. Satire requires that there be some political target and that you're making an argument. Mm -hmm. And usually it's an argument that is critical of political institutions or political practices or policies or is critical of the public itself. So There are a lot of jokes that are kind of silly and they kind of touch on politics, but they're not actually advancing some kind of a judgment or argument. So they're not satire. Irony is great because irony is, uh, it doesn't have to be political. Obviously, you can have completely apolitical irony. Mm -hmm. The way that I think about irony, um, there's the work of a, a lot of linguists who talk about irony as the direction or the valence of what is stated is the opposite of the direction or valence that it intends to communicate. Mm -hmm. So saying something is good when it's bad or bad when it's good is generally, and that's one permutation of irony. So the reason that irony tends to be so popular in the context of satire is that it's a really rich way to indirectly make a judgment about something and criticize society or practices or people without hitting someone over the head with it. Because usually it's, like I said, describing a policy as though it's wonderful when it clearly is terrible, or describing something as terrible when it's clearly wonderful or good. And the way that irony creates that juxtaposition invites the audience to come in and say, wait a second, they're describing this as really wonderful, but I think it sounds kind of bad. And then you ask yourself, why is it bad? Oh, it's bad because it disproportionately kills minority communities. Or it's bad because it is, you know, undoing our democratic values. So the audience brings a lot to Mm -hmm. these. Like, that's the thing about satire and irony is that it's a lot of work on the audience. And also that, you know, the comedian has to be pretty cool with the fact that, like, they put that text out there, they create the juxtaposition, they offer the riddle, but then it the audience does with it what they will, especially in irony. At one point you said something about how people are not very motivated to think hard and not particularly able to think about multiple things at the same time. You were discussing that, like trying to figure out if it's motivation or they're just not able, able to think about multiple things at the same time. And then I think about how comedy is getting shorter and shorter. And are we just 
freaking lazy. Is, the, is that the problem? Is yeah, that well, there's also, there's so many things competing for our time. Yeah. So I, I, I do think because we are animals and we are hardwired to survive, efficiency is the goal, always. Mm -hmm. Even though we think we're all fancy and like I'm in my office and I'm on my computer, I still just want to survive. So efficiency is always the goal. That is why we do not think hard and long about things, especially if we feel like, oh, I have this impression of this. That's probably about it. That's all I need. We're not really, we're not very motivated to try to figure out whether or not we're right or wrong. Like, why would you do that? I'm always right. Why would I try to figure mm -hmm. out if I'm wrong? So it's, it's a lot of motivation. With humor, what's interesting is that we also have the issue of there's working memory, which is where not where, it's not actually a place, but it is the phenomenon in which people are actively considering information that's coming in, in light of information they already have, right? This is like kind of, it's like your work, mm -hmm. the working things out space. That is limited, okay? People have varying degrees of working memory, but it is limited. You cannot do a thousand things at once. You probably can't even really do two things at once. You think you're doing two things at once. You're actually task switching between those things, which is why I tell my students, do not be on Facebook in class. You think you're listening, you're not. <laughs> All you're doing is actually listening to lecture and then being on Facebook and listening to lecture and then being on Facebook. So that is an actual real ability issue. That's like, you are not able to do multiple things at once. And humor, because humor is so complex in terms of offering up some kind of a riddle or incongruity that then the audience has to figure out, wait, how do I make sense of that? I got to grab something from long-term memory figure out where that is, make the associations, bring it to the joke, and then figure out what that means, and then say, what is the argument that that's making? So I created a theory that basically says there is no or very little ability left over to then ask, is that argument fair? Is it right? So we say, yeah, people tend to get less mad when you offer something up through humor, right? Because it's just a joke. But is it just because it's just a joke? What's responsible for that? Why don't we wait? Why don't we get as mad? Right? They said it. They said this thing. They clearly are, are advancing this argument, even though they're not making it explicitly. Mm -hmm. Why don't we get as mad? Well, I argue that we don't get as mad because we're not able to ask that level of question because we're so busy figuring out the thing that then the brain is like, oh, oh, I got the thing. Then we're not like, is that thing fair? Does that thing hold up in light of the evidence? I, I don't know. We don't do that. So then do, then humor would be more or less influential in terms of getting people to think a certain way. Yeah. So when you reduce counter argumentation, when you reduce resistance, and when you get people to at least entertain an idea for a split second that they might otherwise be mad about, that should be something that is beneficial for persuasion. That being said, you know, the jury is still out on the persuasive effects of humor. Humor itself, jokes are not going to make someone change their mind about a presidential candidate. They're just not. However, they will at least get people to entertain an idea for a minute, which then could be some kind of a gateway later on for them to think about other things. Mm -hmm. And now what's the now... So I actually, it's funny because I had an argument with my sister on Facebook, I think, and she was just saying how, how humor and comedy is always liberal or they only let liberal people be funny or something like this. And, but I, this, yeah. you actually have proven that satire is liberal for a reason, often liberal, 
and outrage is conservative. And we will find these things in certain places and for a certain reason. And what are those reasons? Yeah. For a certain reason, yes. So now I, will, I would not go so far as to say that I have proven it, but I offer up an explanation and I offer up some empirical evidence in support of that explanation. And I say this because, mainly because I teach the philosophy of science and scientists never prove anything is right. They only prove themselves wrong, which is why scientists drink. Um, so, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, especially political scientists right now. Um, <laughs> so what I did was I, I'd been asked this question for a long time because I had been studying the effects of exposure to political satire on attitudes and knowledge and behaviors. I had studied the effects of watching The Daily Show and Colbert and, and all these things through the early 2000s. And everyone would always ask, why is it that all your examples are liberal satire? And I was like, well, because there is no conservative satire, right? I can't find it. Or, or they would just say, why is there no conservative satire? And uh, I didn't have a compelling answer until I started thinking about the psychology of liberals and conservatives. And there is really a great body of work on how liberals and conservatives are really different in ways that don't actually seem to have much to do with political policies. Liberals and conservatives are different sort of culturally. They're different in kind of what motivates them to engage with the world. Mm -hmm. And that's why you end up with these kind of stereotypes about what a liberal is and what a conservative is to the point where you're like, they eat different foods. They like their coffee different. They drive different cars. So to, to sum up what, where, what is the distinction? I think the most compelling case has been made by um, John Jost and his colleagues at NYU who talk about it in terms of the, the salience of threat the prominence of one's perception of threat in their lives, that conservatives are more likely to be cognizant of and monitoring their environments for threat. And that then is accompanied by a whole biological and physiological and neuropsychological system that helps them engage with the world in ways that satisfy their need to monitor for threat. Liberals are not as cognizant of threats. They don't think about their own death as much as conservatives. They're not thinking about interpersonal violence as much as conservatives. And as a result, that kind of, it's kind of a luxury to be a liberal because it kind of opens you up to think about things for longer, to not have to make split second decisions because you're not necessarily thinking about your survival as much as you are if you're mm -hmm. conservative. So the, some of the traits that are associated with these are fascinating. One is this tolerance for ambiguity or uncertainty, which tends to be higher among liberals, right? Because they're not as worried about these threats. They're not gauging and monitoring the environment for threat. So they can be okay with situations that are unpredictable or uncertain, right? Mm -hmm. Conservatives are less com com comfortable in those environments, in those situations. The other thing that accompanies this is it's a trait that kind of signifies how much you enjoy thinking, riddle solving, coming up with abstract solutions to problems. Mm -hmm. And that also tends to be higher among liberals than conservatives because conservatives tend to be more efficient decision makers. They base decisions on what are called heuristics or shortcuts, like visceral gut reactions to their world that they trust. And those judgments tend to be very consistent for conservatives. All of this is to say, because liberals and conservatives are so different in these kind of primal ways, that changes how they engage with information in their worlds. And 
given that satire and irony in particular are so ambiguous and they require all this cognitive work to kind of unpack it and the fact that there a lot of times political humor is kind of a blend of like seems political but it's goofy and funny mm-hmm. you know it's this hybrid form all of those things make it more likely that liberals will be the ones to express themselves politically in that way and that liberals will be the ones to be more likely to appreciate that kind of content as a form of political meaning whereas conservatives they want certainty they want clear cut distinctions they want efficiency of course they're going to be drawn to someone like Sean Hannity who says exactly what he means says it very clearly very emotionally tells you who the threat is or what the threat is and what to do about it he's not like introducing with nuance or like asking questions that then you got to like think mm-hmm. long and hard like what does that actually mean let me think about that mm-hmm. you know he's telling you exactly right which is efficient so that is kind of that's the simple version of the case that i make and i offer some empirical evidence for that what i thought was really interesting was you said that conservatives are a little more concerned about pathogens hence like the term dirty hippie but in the coronavirus epidemic, it seems to have changed I know. a little bit. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So this, this turned me upside down and backwards because I was like, what is happening? <laughs> right? Because really, our conservatives, our conservative friends should be out there being our warriors to protect yeah. us from coronavirus. Yeah. Right? Like what is happening? Why is it that now our conservative friends are like storming the Michigan State House saying, I want to go to the bar. I don't get it. Well, I think that in part what's going on, there's a really great piece, which maybe we could link to or something. There was a great piece in um, Vox.com from where different political psychologists weighed in to try to explain this. Because it was like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Part of it is that the way that mask wearing, for example, is being framed, taps into a value of caring for others which is kind of a more liberal value Mm. as opposed, because the masks really don't necessarily just protect yourself, Mm -hmm. right? The masks are about not transmitting to your community, which is a very different kind of appeal. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that we have, conservatives are very receptive to what we call elite cues. Again, they're looking for efficiency. They're looking to know what the threat is and what to do about it. That means that when a Republican leader or official says, here is the threat, They're like, okay, that's the threat. Mm -hmm. So Trump early on characterized this as something that was a threat, not of a virus itself, which he equated to like no worse than the flu. It's not a big deal. Instead saying the threat is the media. The threat is Democrats. So that then kind of- And China. Right, (laughs) and China. (laughs) So that definitely reframed the virus to take on some meaning- So the virus then became the ammunition of these other threats. And they did it quite successfully, you know, by doing this sort of strategic reframe. But you're absolutely right. I was like, this to me is such a missed opportunity because I'm like, the people who are the most naturally suited to helping us avoid this threat and helping us respond to it quickly they're operating in this other way. Yeah. What a, what a drag. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Because I think you have it, like, at the end, you, like, did, 
go around like it's not that conservatives are terrible and we don't need them like there's actually good things about conservatives that help us function exactly yeah so that was you know coming at this as someone who is socially culturally pretty liberal and i do improv comedy and i i like comedy and so i was like oh these traits that accompany liberals are the traits that predict who's going to make and appreciate humor so those are good traits but they're not always good right i mean really if you are someone who has infinite tolerance for ambiguity you have infinite tolerance for uncertainty and you just like to think for the sake of thinking <laughs> can, we, can we be honest about what a pain in the ass these people are i mean i know you know these people Lauren. yeah i mean i, I these am, people yeah, these right? people <laughs> These people, they, by the way, these people, I'm in there and they're like my best friends, but what a pain in the ass, number one. Number two, they can't make a decision to save their freaking life. And yeah. that, seriously, like literally. So if you want someone who's going to be able to make a decision, make it efficiently and not get bogged down in the details, you probably do want a conservative. And when you think about it, that was the huge criticism of the right about Barack Obama was that he was so professorial and he, he didn't take action soon enough. Yeah. And remember with Syria, when he was like, there's a line in the sand, here's the line, you can't cross it. And then they kind of crossed it and he was like, well, we're mad, you crossed the line. <laughs> so that was, they were like, no, somebody crosses a line, yeah. we to take action. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you know, Obama's foreign policy was his his doctrine was basically he said on air force one one time don't do stupid shit and that's interesting and that actually is quite in keeping with the like tolerance for ambiguity you know what let's just stay afloat here yeah not do anything too crazy but we don't want to mess anything up yeah and you can understand how folks on the other side would be like at some point you got to do something well do you think if he messaged it differently he could have it could have been perceived totally differently and maybe supported in a different way? I don't know. I don't know because even if he messaged it differently, if the point he was making was we cannot take action quickly because we do not know what kind of implications there will be down the road of this action, which I think is actually what he meant, mm -hmm. right? I think that he was looking at Iraq and Afghanistan and he was looking like, well, those ended up to be a cluster whatever. Those were disaster. Mm -hmm. So we have to think through every possible outcome of the actions that we take. I think that's actually what he meant. And I think that's just not compatible with a sort of conservative orientation to the world, which is like, honestly, this is what's so interesting to me about the allegations that Facebook is anti-conservative, which doesn't hold up with the empirical data, by the way. But the Facebook philosophy of move fast and break things that's actually quite conservative philosophy, right? Because mm. it's like, no, just take action. We don't need to like do a pro and con list. We don't do a, need to do a full analysis of like the possible implications of all of these things long-term. Let's just do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that is kind of fascinating. That, that is really, really interesting to think about. Yeah. I mean, because he could have said like, I'm about to take action but I just need to check a few things. Oh, that's liberal. I guess that's, that's <laughs> If you think that Sean Hannity would report on that quote with anything other than 
check a few things. <laughs> yeah. Is it a grocery list? <laughs> check a few things. True. Very yeah, true. Right? Yeah, it's true. It's so true. Well, so, we, just, okay. we, just, we just want our panel of experts and, and experts in foreign policy to go through and make sure that we have the long-term consequences figured out. Still. Still, terrible. still. Well, I had another idea, too, for, for messaging, and that's like, um, so it's something about like, okay, conservative participants in this study were asked to, who experienced invulnerability visualization exercise. So their socially conservative beliefs decrease more than the conservatives who had experienced the fight flight condition. So I think it was something where they had visualized they were invulnerable. And then they became, their beliefs became less, when they didn't feel threatened, their, the beliefs became less um, closed off, less extreme. So should, yeah. can we just make, give all the conservatives like visualizations that they're like a superhero and then maybe they can like trans people? Like is that? <laughs> no, totally. In fact, there's an, a similar study. Now, that neither of these studies is mine. I just find them so, so fascinating. Another one by um, Arsenault and Arrow and I forgot the third author, but the um, basically trying to understand if you get people to really feel disgusted, would that alter their their beliefs about immigrants. Yeah. And it did. So the, both, both of these are talking about a sense of safety. If you can get people feeling safe and clean and safe and clean and safe and clean and safe and clean, then that moderates their social and cultural conservative views. This is why when we're in the middle of this complete, utter disaster that's happening right now in the United States, right, where you have peaceful protests going on, but then you have people taking up, taking advantage of these protests as opportunities to create chaos, right? These accelerators who go in and create chaos or actual young people who are just going in and looting stores. Those images are actually so powerful for the sense of threat that they evoke in conservatives and they will probably have some kind of devastating effects for liberal causes at the ballot box, right? Because what those pictures do is they make you feel chaotic and threatened. Like, oh my God, everything's insane. There's things on fire and there's people yeah. fighting and da, da, da. that evokes the sense of threat. So I do think it, it would be very hard in this particular cultural moment to evoke feelings of invulnerability. And in terms of messaging strategy, you're exactly right. If we could get everybody in a room and just be like, you're very <laughs> safe. You're so safe right now. Everything is good and you're safe and there's no germs. Look, it's Purell. You're bathing in Purell. Yeah. Right? It would be amazing. And yes, everyone would be like, awesome. I love all trans people. And, you know, black lives do matter. And, yeah. but how do we get to that place? I, I and then the things they're doing, like the outrage basically makes a point of pointing out a threat. Yeah. No I mean, it is, it is swimming upstream because the kinds of informational formats and genres that these individuals seek out does not emphasize peace and secure, like prosperity. It emphasizes, I mean, I don't know if you remember Donald Trump's inaugural speech was all about like mass carnage. <laughs> I mean, it was the weirdest thing. I think um, there was a great quote from Hillary Clinton who talks about how George W, because of course she was there at the inaugural speech as the former first lady. Yeah. Wow. And apparently George W. Bush turned to her and was like, well, that was some weird shit. <laughs> I mean, it was that weird, right? So, but those, but those images and that language is strategic. 
because it does create this very unsettling sense. And the people who are hardwired to orient to those kinds of things, they do seek out that information. Mm. They look for that. So that's what's interesting is that for a long time, I, I feel like political psychologists were looking at it as though conservatives were monitoring for threats to be able to avoid the threats. I am not convinced that that is true. Mm. I think that in part it is looking for the threats to try to take action towards the threats. I mean, that's, I don't have empirical evidence for that yet, but it doesn't seem to me to be threat avoidant. It's like, where are the threats? I gotta know who to take out. (laughs) Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Gotcha, interesting. And so like, so, cause it's almost like they're, whereby like part of the things you talked about, like there's traits that are inherent to liberals and conservatives. And I just wonder if there are traits and it's funny, and then I started to think about like people in my own family, in my own life, and like how their traits just like, you know, filter naturally to their political beliefs. Like, is this going to be genetic? Is this genetic? And then if so, are we going to start like selecting for this kind of stuff? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I've not been asked that question more. Yeah. Oh, yuck. Um, well, the genetic question I've been asked, but not the selection piece. That is a sticky wicket. So the genetic piece... There are a lot of political psychologists from the University of Nebraska who have done a bunch of studies, even looking at um, twin pair studies, where they look at fraternal twins and identical twins to try to understand if these traits and their linkages to politics are more pronounced among those who are genetically identical. And the answer is yes. So in fraternal twins that have been raised in the same house, you will find more differences in personality traits and politics than you do between identical twins who are raised in the same house. So there is some evidence that there is a genetic component. However, as you said, because we know from experimental work that you can manipulate people's feelings of invulnerability, you can manipulate people's sense of threat, and that that then subsequently shapes their political beliefs, it's not like they're immutable right? So yeah, you have these traits, you have these propensities, but it's not like you come out of the womb and you're like, I love Richard Nixon. You know, it just doesn't, it's not how it works. You know, the role of family and socialization and all of this, of course, is important. But all of that, what ends up happening is that because we have these sort of physiological needs or propensities, that's going to end up shaping the friends we seek out, the kinds of professions that we find ourselves in. The fact that I think it's really interesting that there are very few conservative comics. And when I say very few, I mean compared to liberal comics. And part of that may be because liberals have this higher comfort with ambiguity and uncertainty and and unpredictability. So maybe they're okay not knowing where their next paycheck is going to come from. Maybe they're more okay not having health insurance. Maybe they're more okay being like, I'm going to take a couple years and figure out my life, as opposed to someone who does need predictability, who does need routine, who is like, I need to go to four years of school to become an accountant so I can marry a person and settle down, get a house and have babies. So the point being, these physiological, genetic, biological, whatever differences then shape the kinds of decisions that you make that may then shape the kinds of people you'll meet right? The kinds of friends you'll have, the kinds of ideas that you'll end up exposed to. And that can create this sort of cyclical thing. Mm. We also know though that something like tolerance for ambiguity, which 
really one of the missions of a liberal arts education is to increase tolerance for ambiguity, is to get people to be more okay with uncertainty, to be more okay seeing things in shades of gray. Mm -hmm. So I think that the social conservatives aversion to higher ed runs deep for many reasons. Yeah. Because also we know that if you get students to engage in like study abroad programs, that also ends up increasing tolerance for ambiguity. So these things, again, they're yeah. movable. Yeah. But don't you need like tolerance for ambiguity to, for problem solving? Which is why like liberal arts, I have a liberal arts degree and I'm like, it was so important because it taught me how to think, which then I could do anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny, Lori. That's what I tell my students all the time. My students will say, my parents are trying to understand what kind of job I'm going to get with a communication degree or yeah. a political science degree. And I'm like, um, any job, really. They're like, no, but they want to know, like, what are the jobs I can get? And I'm like, you are learning how to write and how to read and how to think and how to be a problem solver and an innovator. Uh, yeah. And they're like, yeah, my mom and dad don't like that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. My not, That's my, not a job. Yeah. I mean, I'd like, like I majored in science. I hated it. I like cried in the library every day. And but like, I was like, Oh, I'm like, I guess that's how college is supposed to go. You know, didn't everyone cry? No, and I was like, this, but I mean, it was helpful in the long run because it helped, you know, my, if I, I was around all day long, people who had, you know, very high tolerance for ambiguity and not like structure. So I'm like a very structured comedian. So, you know, so I'm not, oh, that's really so it was like, it was actually kind of helpful, but I think it just like, we don't, you know, that's another conversation just about like being able to be like, actually, guess what? Most of the jobs people have today, there's no program for them. You just need to know how yeah. to think. That's it. You just need to know how to think. Exactly right. I was actually, I was just doing this um, graduation ceremony on Zoom with our master's students. And you know, the job market is awful. So you're like, hey, you're going out into this awful job market. But I'm like, no, no, no. This is such a moment of economic disruption. Everything is changing. Technologies are changing. Politics are changing. We need people who are thinkers to be able to come up with the big ideas to solve these problems. And you are those people. Absolutely. And it's funny because I, even though that in the end, like leads to greater security with new ideas comes innovation and ability to adapt and survive. Conservatives are not interested in, in that process. They're just like, you know, straight. They, in, people, people have said that there is an attack on higher ed because they are, especially liberal arts, like challenging people to learn to think. And they don't like that. They just want people who follow, 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 follow what they're told. Well, I think that we, I think that the two ideologies disagree about what it means to think, mm. right? Because I, I, I do think that liberal arts, there is this, there's this increasingly sort of critical lens underlying liberal arts education, right? It's critical. It's anti-authoritarian. It's, it's, um, you know, challenging thinking like, okay, well, it's always been done this way. Is that right? Right. Mm -hmm. I think that there is something to be said for the question of like, is it always good just to be critical, just to be critical? Or are there reasons to be critical? So I think that part of it on the part of conservatives is like, that's not thinking. That's just, I think they see that as like not thinking, but, but that's activism. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like when they talk about these activist professors, I think that that's how they perceive it. That's all like activist judges when they're like, they're doing more than like, what are they talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And they they yeah. made like Scalia did more in terms of like what they would can be considered activism, but because he agreed with yeah. them, they don't consider it activism. Like, I don't understand. No, I think it is because it's against tradition. So therefore it's different. It's progressive. Mm. 
therefore it's activist. And remember, when you're talking about the activist judges, they're talking that they are strict constitutionalists who are like, no, this is not a living, breathing document. They wrote what they wrote and they meant what they meant and the words are what the words are. So any contextualization in light of changes in culture or context is like activism. Wild. You know, another, another like disparity in, in how things are perceived and, and what the data says. So the data that you found was like, uh, and you talked about was that a sense of humor is inversely p- related to being conservative. And yet they say liberals can't take a joke. Why? How does that happen? That's a good question. I don't know if I have the answer to that. But uh, before I jump away from that, though, because the sense of humor thing, people get really, and I get it, to say like, well, conserv- I found that conservatives don't have a sense of humor. What I found was I have this, this battery of questions that measures how much people value humor as a mode of expression, how much do they value the production of humor and the use of humor as a coping tool and the use of humor as a social lubricant. That is the trait, sense of humor. Like those are the kinds of items that were in that scale. And yeah, it's significantly lower among conservatives than among liberals. And I think part of that is that, part of that might be about efficiency. Um, I think part of it is also that when you're someone who perceives threat in the world, it feels like joking around is besides the point, mm-hmm. maybe. And interestingly, I think that what we have witnessed more and more of under Trump among liberals is an inability to stay in the state of play and stay joking because liberals are like, look, I'm not someone who's always monitoring for threat, but there's a threat. So I think perceiving threat and being playful mm-hmm. in the moment are typically hard to do together. Um, So I I think that's part of it. But your statement about, you know, liberals can't take the joke. I think part of it is that liberals, because they have this sort of, this moral foundation, there's a a wonderful book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, which is just such a great book. And the moral foundations underlying conservatism and liberalism, liberalism are different. So his book is more about philosophy and sociology, maybe more than psych, but it is still psychology. So he talks about how for liberals, this principle that governs how they engage with the world is one of caring. And they think of their reference group, not as just those close to them, but as humanity, like their their reference Mm -hmm. group is big. So if that's the case, then for liberals, the idea of jokes that insult different categories of people, because they think of themselves as part of these reference groups of humanity, I think that it's harder for liberals to, to like play along with the joke because mm-hmm. they feel that like to attack that group is to attack everyone and all of us. Mm-hmm. I think that is part of it. It also just doesn't feel appropriate. You know, if you cannot, someone needs to be willing to, someone needs to trust you and be willing to enter a playful state with you in order to even go along the ride with your joke. So if you, if you are known to be someone who's going to mock an outgroup or mock marginalized groups, you know, I, I think there are a lot of liberals that are just like, I'm not even going to go on the ride. You know, I don't want to be complicit in that. Mm. And I think too, like liberals are also like making the jokes about, so conservatives will often like punch down and, and then liberals will get upset about it. Conservatives will punch down. Liberals will get upset about it. But then like when liberals are starting to make jokes that kind of dismantle 
what they know, the status quo, they get very conservatives actually get very, very upset. They're very touchy, very sensitive. In fact, they just don't see it as sensitive. They just think it is like, you're trying to dismantle my world and therefore I'm upset. It's not that I don't know how to take a joke. It's that you're inappropriate. You cross the line and it's like, yeah. And both sides do that because both sides have different lines. Both sides have different lines that they won't cross. I think though that in terms of the willingness to create political meaning through jokes, that's something that is classically liberal compared to conservative because it says it, it also has to do with um, conservative sort of need for moral seriousness, right? That is like, this is serious and I'm serious and we are serious and we're not playing around and it's yeah. serious. So I'm always intrigued by conservative efforts to try to undermine liberals by showing them doing things that are um, silly. Like I always bring up this example of when conservatives try to out Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for being silly dancing up on the rooftop, like in high school or something. I don't know if you saw yeah. that video, like she's yeah. dancing yeah. and it was like, Oh, so this is who you want. And liberals are like, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Want. you know, but they're like, someone who dances. Yeah. Or like that meme with like the, um, and then she didn't she respond by putting up a video of her dancing in front of her office. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Like, oh, yeah. That's what I'm doing. What are you? Yeah. Or the, yeah. The meme they try, the conservative meme of like, you know, showing a bunch of people in different out like costumes on it, on the train and be like, this is what the future's going to be like. And then you're like, yeah, this is what the future's going to be like. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, kind of the same thing when Trump is like, you know, it'd be like a taco truck on every corner. It was like, oh my God, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I think, I think part of it has to do with this hybridity, this discomfort with like sort of playful. And oh, there's also so much about gender in here too. There's so much about gender and race too, because to be kind of silly and self-deprecating mm -hmm. is also like, heaven forbid, that's very, it's like a woman. You make fun of yourself, right? Mm. Right? That's not alpha. That's not masculine. Mm. You know, I, I um, wrote a book chapter with a graduate student of mine, Johanna Luke, and we, uh, we did a content analysis of all of the jokes that were made by political candidates who showed up on late night comedy shows. And what kinds of humor did they use? And usually, candidates use those places as, as places to, to humanize themselves, right? And how do you do that? You poke fun at yourself. That's what you do. You show up on those shows and you make fun of yourself. Unless you're Donald J. Trump. Yeah. He shows up on those shows, does not make fun of himself at all. It makes fun of everyone else. Mm. Which is fascinating because he's like mm -hmm. Team Alpha. Yeah, he's super so, Team Alpha. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why, like, you know, the hardest, the hardest group to perform, I find, is um, rich white Republicans are the worst because they just, they're the most important person in the room. Well, I am going to accept that offer yep. and build on it and say, yes, and have you ever tried to perform for middle school boys? Middle school boys? Um, no, that's fascinating. Okay, because uh, <laughs> comedy sports, we do a lot of, uh, we do all, all ages shoes, right? Because it's improv. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and birthday parties and, you know, different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. Oh, it's awful because laughing, <laughs> laughing is a vulnerable act. 
laughing at someone else telling a joke is an act of vulnerability. Yeah. And so no middle school boy wants to be vulnerable. So they don't laugh, number one. And they want to be the alphas. So they want to make the jokes. So they they heckle a little bit. Like they yell stuff out when it's not telling. Right? Oh they want to be the funny one. Holy Moses, it's a nightmare. Oh my and so, <laughs> Wow, and you can, of course you can rip them apart, especially in stand-up. You could just rip one of those kids apart, but then that changes the whole time. That changes all the time. No, no, no. We don't. Well, hello. We're also getting paid to like entertain yeah, totally. them. Usually, sometimes they're like youth groups and stuff. So we just have to like be funny. That is so funny. Even if you talk about poop, like and farting and fart jokes, poop jokes, they don't. Yeah. Interested. Well, no, poop jokes and fart jokes. Yes, those do work. Those do work. And actually, we have some really good members of the company who are really good at understanding that, like, oh, 13 year old boys, I know how to do this. Whereas I'm like, oh, let's, let's have a feminist scene with da, da, da. And it's like, that's not, that's not. You know what? And what's funny though, too, is I wonder if part of the problem is that I am a girl. Maybe if we just took all of our dude players and put them yeah. on stage. That's interesting. That might go, yeah. Yeah. Just because they just want to see dudes talk about, it's like them seeing an older version of them just talk about poop. Exactly. They're like, ah. Exactly. You know, somebody was on Twitter and asking me, hey, you know, it's been interesting to watch the late night hosts transition to making jokes without an audience. And somebody had said, you know, it really feels like the guys are having a hard time. Samantha B is rocking it. And I was like, well, that's because women are very used to making jokes without anyone laughing because that's just, you know, socially, that's mm-hmm. something that is quite normal. Mm-hmm. And that men often make jokes as a gesture of status of some kind, as an effort to, to get status. And so for them, it's like, wait, where's the laugh? Yeah. How do I do this? Whereas Samantha B is just like, no, I'm just here. Yeah. I'm making myself <laughs> laugh. And I don't care if you laugh at all. Oh, that's amazing. That's so funny. Now there's also the, you talked about like people's perceptions of what they're watching affect their experience, like entertainment versus news and how that's different for liberals and conservatives. Yeah, so I think part of this also is like what what people will admit to finding as an acceptable source of political information or meaning. And conservatives would say, I think conservatives would be less comfortable deriving some kind of meaning for something that says it is funny, Mm -hmm. right? They say this is designed to be funny. You'd be far less likely to have conservatives say, well, I go to that show for political information because it feels like rather flip to do that. So that's part of it. The other thing that's interesting is that when you ask people what are their motives for consuming certain kinds of information, you know, people who watch Fox will say, I go to Fox for um, headlines and for political perspectives, right? They're not necessarily going to say, I go there for entertainment, even though you have to know that part of the itch that's being scratched is an entertainment itch, right? But if you ask people about satire, why do you watch Jon Stewart or whatever? They're like, oh, a mix, part entertainment, part information, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. So that's my, for some of these things, when it comes down to like, okay, so who's being influenced by what they watch? I think if you say, how often do you learn from blah, blah, blah? I think that's really a tricky thing to ask because I don't think the conservatives would say, I'm learning from this entertainment show. However, I think if you did a controlled study and you, if you expose them to the show, 
and then afterwards you measured how much they learned, you'd find that they may have learned, mm. you know? So I think it, we got to be really careful about what people are sort of, how they see themselves versus what they're willing to say versus what's actually happening. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing with like, it's like political versus knowledge versus opinion. And that oh, there's, because yeah. the thing is like too, like the, the show that what they would say, cause what is fat? And then, okay. There's a few things. There's like, one is that people are, some shows are saying that they are opinion, but they, they, mar they would like, if approached be like, well, we're just doing making our opinion, but they actually stated as fact. And yeah. then also there's shows that say there's like, they will like state the purpose of it is news, but they are actually not, they're stating opinions. Like the idea of like, what yeah. is an opinion and what is a fact? And then they're also lying too. Like there's that too. So there's that you, too. Yeah. yeah. I have run into this problem over the years, the, the difference between uh, beliefs and knowledge, right? So one of my favorite examples of this was a 2003 study that came out uh, called Misperceptions in the Iraq War. I think it was out of the University of Maryland. And what they found was that Republicans were significantly more likely to believe that uh, Saddam Hussein had been responsible for 9-11. They were significantly more likely to believe that we had found WMDs in Iraq, which we hadn't, right? They were significantly more likely to believe actually that public opinion of the world was on the side of the U.S. invading Iraq and Afghanistan, which it wasn't. So now we know, we have empirical data that tells us the reality of these things, that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11, that there had been no WMDs found in Iraq, and that public opinion around the globe was not in favor, in fact, was opposed to U.S. invading Iraq and Afghanistan. So the report was talking about this as a lack of knowledge on the part of these Republicans. And when you looked at it, it was also related to what news they consumed. So they were talking about it as a lack of knowledge among Republicans and among Fox News viewers. And I'm like, but here's the thing. If you look at their content and you read between the lines and you are thoughtful in how you are watching that content, you are going to come away from that content with the knowledge that Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11, there were WMDs, and that everybody wants us to invade Iraq and Afghanistan. So is it fair to say that these people are dumb? Is it fair to say they don't have knowledge? Or is it fair to say that the knowledge that they were provided by the outlet that they trust was incorrect? Is it not knowledge if it's untrue? Ha, huh. that's tricky, right? So. The way that we think about this is, I mean, this is all actually about the philosophy of science. The way we think about this as social scientists really is, is about, is the information falsifiable? Can you prove it wrong? And if you have an empirical reality that disproves that information, are you then willing to adjust your, update your knowledge accordingly? And that's where we run into a problem because a lot of these ideological folks are not then willing to update their knowledge. Instead, what they do is they come up with another reason why what they thought in the first place was correct, right? They doubled down. So one approach to this that I like a lot is by uh, Kathleen Hall Jameson and Joe Capella, who wrote a book called Echo Chamber, all about the Rush Limbaugh audience. And instead of talking about it as misinformation or disinformation or, or beliefs versus opinions, whatever, they call it balkanized knowledge. So there are some issues on which 
Rush Limbaugh's listeners or Fox News viewers are objectively better informed, have more accurate information than liberals. They are the issues that serve Republicans. They are situations or policies or events that serve Republicans. So I made an argument in the book that I bet, I would venture to guess that if you looked at the audiences of MSNBC and Fox News, you would find significantly higher rates of knowledge of people, places, and things related to the Benghazi episode than among Fox News viewers than you would among MSNBC viewers. Because the Benghazi story and the Benghazi attacks, which you know was on Obama's watch and Clinton accepted responsibility for not giving back up to that embassy in Benghazi. But if you, that story does not serve liberals. So MSNBC really didn't talk about it very much. Now, it's like all Fox talked about forever. I'm sure that there was some misinformation that got through there, but there were also just facts of what happened that got through there. So they refer to this as balkanized knowledge because it's distinct knowledge bases that are created for different kinds of people, depending upon which knowledge serves their side. That way you kind of get at, get out of the, like, is it opinion? Is it belief, et cetera? It's just people know different things. I know the things that serve me. You know the things that serve you. Hmm. And then that, like, there's a thought that maybe satirical programs can, do they make people more polarized or do polarized people seek them out? And I, I think about that a lot. I mean, because I create satire and not just of Melania Trump, who's one of my big characters, but like of other, I mean, every character I've ever done is essentially satirical. It's, it's basically making a point about something. So are we making it worse? I mean, that's, I'm like, oh my God. That's a great question. I think in some ways, yeah, it does. I think it would be disingenuous for me to come away from the research that I did for years on the effects of exposure to The Daily Show and Colbert and say that that does not contribute in some way to polarization. Because what it does is those shows reinforce your worldview. They bring things to the top of your mind. They help to crystallize the things that you probably already think, right? But oftentimes they're moving you farther in that direction. They're moving you farther in that direction you're already headed in. What I would love to see more of, and I think that there is a market for it, is political satire that is truly, that is not ideological per se, but is disruptive. So Mm. political satire that doesn't take aim at the left or the right, but political satire that takes aim at the machinery that drives the left and the right apart. Political satire that takes aim at some of the institutions who behave badly because it's in their best interest to do that, right? Things like, or policies like campaign finance, which totally fuels political polarization. So in ways, in in some ways, I think that John Oliver does that, does that quite well. I mean, he is ideological, of course, but the stories that he tells are often, they don't really fit really nicely into a left versus right Hmm. sort of framework. And has there been studies about him? And about what the effects of watching Donald Trump? Yeah, yeah, actually, you know what? What he's really good at, I've done a bunch of work on some of the effects of his show. He's so good at providing knowledge and information on really obscure, complicated issues from net neutrality, Mm -hmm. campaign finance. I mean, really, really boring stuff that people end up coming away with a ton of knowledge about. He's also good at distilling 
complex things in a way that it, while framing them. So he does frame issues as he presents them because it's not just like he was a teacher teaching us about net neutrality and Citizens United, yeah. right? He was, or, or Colbert with Citizens United, but he was offering up a particular view of those issues. Yes. In ways that's real, that really works for liberals, in part because I don't think that outrage programming works as well on liberals because I think that liberals don't like being told what to think because we think we're so smart. I really think that that's it. And I, so I think that what, what satire offers liberals is like a suggestion. Hmm. Like, oh, here are some things that we could be thinking about. It's like, oh, I could think about that. As opposed to like, if you're a really good liberal, you'll be doing this today. And the liberals are like, don't tell me who I am. Don't tell me what to do. Yeah. And if that's why it's not as good. You had talked about has not as good for political mobilization. So it's like we're, yeah. our forms of media are not as good at rile, like rousing the troops as outrage programming is. They're really not. The liberal media are great at deconstructing things. <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm going to take action on that deconstruction. Yeah. That's yeah. so true. And they also say that like, um, they say that satire, like they make it seem like, you know, conserv- you know, the comedians are just all about the elites. They're elites, they're elites. But actually you talked about how satire is not an elite sport. It comes from, like you have to be somewhat of an onlooker. You cannot be a participant. That's your job. Right. And in fact, if you do have a stake in the system, a true stake in the system, you're not going to be able to do satire anymore. Not real satire. Yeah. Somebody asked me recently, do, do we have any real satirists right now? And I was like, ooh, that's tough. I would say John Oliver is close. I would say Samantha Bee is close. Um, I think there are some obviously independent satirists that are pretty good. But when you think about true satirists like Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce did not pull any punches from mm-hmm. anyone, right? Or George Carlin, who just yeah. didn't give uh, anything. Yeah. But if you are a satirist and then you end up having a show and now you have all these political guests who sit on your couch and now they're beholden to you and you're beholden to them, you're in it. You're in it. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And then then there's hybrids like The Break, Michelle Wolf was somewhat of a hybrid. Yep. 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 And that only lasted, what, one season? Two seasons? Yeah, I think that was one season. And do you think it's because she didn't necessarily, a lot of times she was taking aim at the machinery and it wasn't one-sided. Yeah, that she was. The, my favorite from that was the bit that she did about, what was it called? It was like that segment where I, I talk about in a book where she talked about. Um, the, about Yeah, about the, I think it was like the media. It was like, now I'm going to get serious and I'm going to say something really yes. important. And yeah. now you know, you know that I'm angry because I stopped making jokes and I'm sitting yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was amazing. That was amazing. And that was one of those things. I think that the issue with that and why I loved it was that it was like, oh, I don't know who she's pissed at. Is she pissed at me because I watched that stuff? Is yeah. she pissed at the late night guys? Is she pissed at like the politicians for like creating the issues in the first place? Is she pissed at the news? I kind of was like loving that. But I think that that kind of ambiguity, even some people are like, that's too much for even me. I don't even know. Who's the the target? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's um, Sarah Silverman, 
did I Love You America, which is, for people who don't know, she often, the formula was, by the end, it was like, it was a rant in the beginning, and then she did a monologue in which she tried to, like, talk about things in a way that was funny, but also serious, and then she went into different skits, and then she had an interview often with someone, and sometimes she went and, like, you know, went to, like, a conservative house and had dinner with people and, like, filmed it short segments, so you didn't get, like, deep, you know? But yeah, how do you, like, what do you, how do you think that, like, approach what we're talking about? You know, I, I love what she was, what she was trying to do. I think there were times that it worked. The bit where she sat and talked to her sister. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a vulnerability there that was very sweet. I think that's the kind of content that would work on sort of liberal or moderate audiences, but I don't think that that's going to, again, transcend this sort of divide Especially yeah. when I don't think that conservatives would go to that kind of content thinking I'm going to have a political experience now because again it doesn't frame itself as political. Yeah. I also feel like I have been asked over the years a lot about put the potential for humor to bridge these divides, and I have not figured out a way that it can work. I really haven't, unless you are someone who is willing to target the machinery that creates the division in the first place. I don't know how you mock your way out of polarization. I think that another form of entertainment that is far better suited to that is uh, storytelling, Mm -hmm. narratives and drama that can, you know, get you feeling empathetic towards someone else. You know, I, I know that there are some folks in the world of comedy who disagree with me and they see comedy as something that really does have empathy in it and is compassionate I think you have to be really, really good at your craft to be able to use it for that. And I don't know, I can't think of a ton of examples that are exceptional in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I think about, it made me think a lot about what I'm doing on this podcast. I mean, I didn't watch with I Love You America with my mom, who's conservative, and and I'm at her house right now. She's probably listening to this. Um, and she was like, <laughs> she's, um, she did not like it. And I was like that, and that made me, I was like, wow, because this, she's really making an effort to try to bridge it. And I was like, I just don't think like, in this podcast, for example, like, I don't know, um, we're asking questions. We're trying to like, we're living in the ambiguity. And it's like, I just don't honestly think that those kinds of people that I would love to reach would even listen to this because it's not, yeah. it's just not a, I mean, maybe it would be more moderate i mean we haven't been around that long we can really like look deep into that and i do hear many people listen to the one thing i i do have hope for is my dad is now a regular guest he's super conservative guy maga guy and he had we have a thing we decided the thing we can all agree on like conservative and liberal is that we hate stupid people even though we might privately say that the stupid person is the other person, but that is, and that's, that is a fact. I do see that. I was like, oh, that's different. But yeah. we make general stupidity. So we have a segment, he's in the car. We open every episode with he's talking about a stupid person. And every, from every walks of life will tell me, oh my God, your dad is awesome. I'm like, yes, because we only have him talking about one very specific thing. Your dad is awesome, but you don't want to hear him. Like, some, we, 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 like we talk about it together and he's like, oh, and this, I'm like, See that? We don't, we don't go that much. <laughs> but, and he has his friends from Brooklyn will listen to it. They listen to every episode. I'm not sure how far after his interview, after his segment, 
they listen. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying, I mean, maybe I should put it at the end. So they have to get, I'm like making them get through the ambiguity and the questions. And this is the biggest obstacle in this media environment with trying to create bridges because there are all these tiny little niche media experiences. So it used to be like, okay, so now you got conservatives who watch Fox and liberals who watch MSNBC. Well, yeah. And now you also have people that go to the specific websites, listen to specific podcasts, follow Mm -hmm. specific people on Instagram. So there is no more mass media experience that could serve to unite people. So finding other ways to do that, I think is really, really, really challenging. I don't have the answer to that. I don't. I think that part of the answer lies within local communities. Mm -hmm. I think our media are obsessed with national politics and the spectacle is entirely about national politics. Mm -hmm. But what affects our lives so much more are local and state politics. And I am very guilty of this because I barely give a hoot about Mm -hmm. local and state politics. However, Mm -hmm. that is where this stuff really matters. And that is where relationships are built. And so I think that the bridges can be built within towns, within neighborhoods. So think about this way. I have a neighbor who is, I have a bunch of neighbors who are Trump supporters and who I love a lot and who do great things for the community. And when I am on Twitter and somebody says anything to me and they have mega in their Twitter bio, Mm -hmm. I'm immediately like, oh, here we go. But I don't feel like that about my neighbors, right? Because I don't reduce them to caricatures because I know them, because I understand who they are as neighbors, as citizens, as parents in the community. So that's where I think the bridges can be built. Hmm. My character, Melania, Melania Trump has a question for you. Oh, I ask? Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So hello, Danagal. I'm very excited to see you today. Um, so I, I did, I hope you feel special because I took time away to Pilates to be here. So, you know, you're welcome. So now I see, I see you talk about the liberal and conservative and everyone to take the jokes and do the jokes and be the jokes. I know from personal experience about that one. So listen, how can I tell my Donald the three times a month that we talk, how can I tell him to be more the funnies? Maybe more people oh. find him the funnies. Yeah. Well, you know what, Melania, I actually think a lot of people do find your husband quite funny, believe it or not. It depends on who the people are. Like I myself hear the things he says, and I feel like he actually doesn't understand how to construct humor properly. However, he also does have a kind of performance that he does when he is in front of people and he is unscripted, Mm. where he does have have a natural comedy to him. Now, his comedy is always aimed at outgroups. It's always aimed at others. And it elevates himself while putting other people down. He is like Triumph the Insult comic dog, but he's the Mm. president. He's Mm. quite good at that. What he is not good at is any other kind of humorous construction. Mm. Um, So I would say if he kind of stays with his lane and, you know, keeps making fun of people who are in, you know, lower status positions... I'm sure that his supporters will continue to find him hilarious. Hmm. I wish he would elevate his performance in other areas. But (laughs) (laughs) 
how could there, is there ever a chance that he could ever make himself so so many people would not like to make the funnies about him about say he oh. don't make the funnies and he could be more more of the funnies to the other people who do not like him i think that if you could sneak in and grab his android or iphone and flush it down the potty mm. i think that he would have a much better time and so would the united oh, states of america on the one hand he tweets and not not talk to me or pay attention oh great great thing on the other hand you know we get scared here too we thought his phone got corona okay we thought sweeting so much that we hired <laughs> we hired back hope of the hicks so that every 30 minutes she could bend over and he get distracted by the cleavage and then dr fauci grab it and sanitize so but I got to go back to Pilates now. Too much time here. I, I, Lord, okay. I it was so good to see you and hear from you. Be best. Thank you. Bye, man. <laughs> Hope of the Hicks. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Um, you know, people say that I exaggerate. And then she's put up videos lately. And I'm like, I have given her more eloquence, okay, than she has herself. Like you say, we all know different things. She knows a lot of things about her things. And, you know. Our things are not the same. It's okay. We, we have the different things, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> I think she's not intellectually developed in, in the way that we might see. <laughs> yes. I actually find, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind, you know, 10 years from now, reading a book about who she actually is. But I don't know if that's knowable. Yeah. I wrote a book called Inside Melania, What I Know About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her. Like, it gives, like, insight into who I think she could be based on yeah. my experience acting her, you know? We get to know, like, this thing and kind of yeah. in her body and what I feel, intuitively feel. And um, all the other stuff I don't think is knowable because Trump's family and organization, had like, they send NDAs, they, they send threatening yeah. letters. So, like, and yeah. there are some books, like... Um, a journalist in Slovenia wrote a book about before and they're, they're giving him legal trouble now, which kind of like was a little more of like telling the truth about her and her past wow. and her not glamorous past. So yeah. yeah. Um, and then a, a, a journalist from GQ went over there and did an article. And then every, after that, everything was clamped down. So I don't think we can ever find out. Wouldn't you just love to know? Gosh, I would just love to know. Like, what does she think of her life? I mean, it's, it's tricky because sometimes I feel bad for her. And then a lot of my liberal friends are like, no, she is a birther. Yeah. She knew what she was marrying. Yeah. She loves the lifestyle. And I'm like, but is she happy? Mm. She didn't choose. The, she doesn't want to be first lady. Like I said, she was annoyed <laughs> yeah. to, be, yeah. to do, you know, she's just annoyed to have to do this shit. So that's yeah. basically what I think. Yeah. I do feel bad for that. I feel, I feel that a bit. I also kind of get the sense that she would just rather not be in front of people. Yeah. She doesn't like them. <laughs> no. no. She just thinks she's like, I don't know. She feels she's, she's, she's arrogant. She doesn't, doesn't, she doesn't time for yes. I do feel people. Like, I do feel like her default is just sort of like just oozing contempt. <laughs> you know? There's also the perception of, you know, Eastern Europeans don't smile and the fact that she's had so much shit done to her face, she can't smile that much. So there's like all of that, yeah, like kind yeah. of in there. But And heaven forbid that we become the people that are like, just smile. Why don't you smile, honey? Yeah, yeah. And that's... <laughs> Not doing that. Yeah. And, you know, I try to I try to, to push the satire to just make it to the absurd because we are in an absurd time. And it's, it's trying to get there and trying not to... to, to 
push, make it more polarized, trying to, to make, because I do have conservatives who like my impression, but then I sometimes go places that they're very uncomfortable with and I turn them off. So it's like, yeah, you know, we're that all- is very tricky. No, but I appreciate what you're doing here. And I appreciate the kind of conversations that you have. And listen, even if you only get a couple of, you know, your dad's friends to just listen, even if they shut it off right after him, I feel like no opportunity is wasted. Like no minute is wasted. Even just knowing that they're tuning in at all, who knows? Maybe maybe sometime they'll leave it on and get yeah. to like this point in the podcast. Be like, hey guys, and if you're out there and you're listening, please let us know you're listening. <laughs> Great. So where can people find out, follow your work and find out more about what you're doing? Great. So my book is called Irony and Outreach and it's available on Amazon and from Oxford University Press. I am on Twitter at Danagal, D-A-N-N-A-G-A-L. And I usually share uh, my media appearances, et cetera. I did a, I wrote a piece actually that went viral on uh, Vox two weeks ago called I Was a Conspiracy Theorist Too, which people might find interesting. Oh, um, great. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, thanks for being on the Aisle. So Melania, now do you understand why Donald might be threatened when liberals are deconstructing the status quo with comedy? Deconstruction sounds like a construction project gone bad. Donald would know a lot about that. Mm. Even if he does, he still flies private. How can we forget? For the rest of us, let's think about this. Our media landscape is a direct consequence of changes in media legislation. It's not there by accident. The coronavirus response is actually the opposite of how we'd expect conservatives and liberals to act. The comedians more often lean left, and yet conservatives think that liberals can't take a joke. And there's a reason why for that. People's perception of how they get information and what they know is often very, very different. Now, because of how liberals and conservatives are oriented, it affects the type of programming they seek out. There's differences in literally how we perceive the world. And true satire comes from people without a stake in the system. And we no longer have a mass media to unite people, so we have to find other ways for people to unite. Whew. Let me know what you think. Before we go into the I Don't Care Do You segment, I'd like to do two things. First, I want you to encourage everyone, please, please, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. And now that we've switched over to being on Radio Misfits, we need people to go rate and review again because we're on a different signal. And do consider signing up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get reminders when we publish this every other week. And also on my website, you can find out some other exciting things going on. My book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, is out now. And we'll be on tour hopefully sometime in the fall with the Melania Trump Roadshow. And maybe we'll have to do the tour virtually, but we'll see how it goes. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this than by reading the headlines. So, Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care Do You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care do you about. Hurricane moving towards Hawaii? Oh, only the third in history. Donald put federal agents to stir up the troubles in the Portland and next Chicago. <gasps> Car drives through protests in Colorado? Hmm, but I don't care. Do you? Thank you to everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Christopher Catalano for the voiceover, Manny McLennan for making the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Holtz, and Craig Franson who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. 
And of course, thank you to Dana Gill Young for being such a wonderful guest. See you in two weeks.